You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Well, church, let's begin in prayer as we prepare our hearts to worship through studying God's Word. Father, we thank you for the hope of eternal life that comes in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. Even in spite of everything that's going on, you are on your throne and that you are in charge. And Father, we turn our hearts to you and we just ask you to open our hearts that you would speak to us tonight. Lord, I pray that our hearts would burn within us as we read your word. I pray the Holy Spirit would bring conviction, would bring encouragement, everything that needs to happen tonight. Lord, we pray you would take over this time and you would make us more like Jesus Christ. We ask you to change us, and we ask you to speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. A number of years ago, a couple in the U.S. decided to buy a dog. Now, they wanted more than just a family companion dog. They wanted a competitive dog. They wanted a highly capable and intelligent dog to compete in areas like tracking, obedience, and protection. And so they decided to buy a dog from Europe. And they purchased this dog and flew the dog to California where they, where they were living. And they began training this dog. This dog was incredibly smart, highly intelligent, very good at obedience. And they began working with this dog. Well, over time, they noticed the dog excelled in obedience but was not very good at protection. And that was one of the areas that's a main focus of the competition they were working for. And so they gave the dog some time and they pushed the dog when, when they thought it was appropriate, and, uh, but the dog was just lethargic in that area. Even though it was great in other areas, it just was not good in protection. And so they, they grew frustrated, and they, they waited, and they waited, and they pushed, and they pushed. And over time, they just got so frustrated at this dog. They thought, we've invested so much into this. They waited, you know, till she's three years old now, and she still was just not doing well, performing well in that particular area. And so they just decided, you know what, we're done. Uh, we've, we've waited, we've invested, and we're just going to give the dog away. And so they went ahead and ordered another dog, and, and uh, they've just moved on from her. And so they were so frustrated. And the reason I know this is because we ended up getting that dog. And they were happy to get rid of her. We were happy to get her because she was incredibly smart and uh, very loyal, just a, a, a fabulous dog. But they were so frustrated at her because she was lethargic in just that one area. Hey, you probably have areas in your life that you've been frustrated at before. You know, maybe you bought a house or a car, something you invested a lot of time and money in, and it just didn't live up to your expectations. And you grew frustrated. And and that's understandable because you invested a lot into it. Hey, have you ever wondered, does God get frustrated at us? Does he, does he expect a return on his investment? And let me ask you another question. Has he invested a lot in us? Well, yeah, I would say he has. To think of all, he's created this universe for us to enjoy. He's created humanity to, uh, to live for his glory. He's sent his son Jesus to pay for the sins of the world. He has invested a lot. And so all he asks is in return is that we obey him and that we worship him. And when we don't do that, Do you think he gets frustrated? Tonight, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 3, at the lethargic church in Laodicea. And we're going to see Jesus was frustrated. He was frustrated at this church because they were lukewarm. 
And the focus tonight is not to criticize the church at Laodicea and point our finger at them, but to ask, am I just like the church at Laodicea? Is, is the church at Laodicea, is that in my heart? And so I hope that you'll think carefully and listen carefully to what Jesus has to say to us tonight. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 14, the lethargic church of Laodicea. Now we need to understand a little bit about Laodicea before we get going on this. Uh, just like the rest of these, the history of the city is so crucial as a background to what Jesus is saying. Laodicea, if you were, last week we were in Philadelphia, so if you were to leave Philadelphia and travel southeast about 45 miles, you would come to Laodicea. It was, a, it was located in a beautiful area in the Lycus Valley, uh, just close to it were 8,000 foot mountains. It was a beautiful area, and um, it, it, it was strategically located on uh, an important, at a crossroads of important trade routes. In fact, the, the road from Ephesus went right through there. Ephesus was about 90 miles away, went straight through Laodicea. The roads were well kept, and so it was an important trade area. So there were a lot of commerce there. It was one of the wealthiest cities in the world. It was known for its banking, for its black wool industry, and for medical care. It was the greatest city in that area. It had been named by Antiochus II in honor of his wife. And so um, the, the city was a wonderful place. It was, because of its easy access, to, it had a thriving wool industry. And it also had a medical center about 13 miles away called Men Karu. And um, two of his famous teachers there actually ended up on, on coinage in that area at, at a later time. And so it was a very well thought of, highly developed city, commerce, banking, wool industry. All of that was happening at Laodicea. And so there were other important cities closer there as well. About 10 miles south was Colossae. Remember Colossae? That we, uh, Paul's letter to the, to the Colossians. It was written to the believers at Colossae. And then about five miles northwest of there was Hierapolis. So you had a couple other cities there, but Laodicea was the primary city in that area. And so in verse 14, as Jesus writes to this church, we get several more titles for Jesus. He says, And to the angel in the church of Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now these words are not adjectives describing Jesus. They're titles for Jesus. They have the article in front of them, especially the first few. And so the amen is a title for Jesus. And the word amen just means yes or so be it. You see it in the Old Testament. If you go back to 1 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 36, it says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen and praise the Lord. There, there's our word. Jesus used this term. And uh, it, or Jesus' use of this term probably comes from Isaiah 65, 16. Let me read this verse to you. It says, So that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. Now that word for truth is amen. So the God of amen. And so Jesus is connecting himself with the Old Testament. He is the God of amen. He is the God of truth. He is the God who is reliable. He is the God who is faithful. And all of that is to con contrast the church at Laodicea, which was unfaithful, which was unreliable. And so Jesus is the true one. He also says he is the faithful 
and true witness. He's, some witnesses are unfaithful. Some witnesses are, are untrue. But Jesus is the one who is true. He's the one who's trustworthy. He's the one we can trust what he says. And then he goes on, um, or all three of these titles are specific to Laodicea because they were what the church was not. The church was unfaithful to Jesus. They were not true to him. And their witness for him was missing. Now, we need to be clear. I believe this is writing to believers in the church. Last week at Philadelphia, uh, Jesus said, I know your, your works, or rather at Sardis. He said, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So he's talking about unbelievers. But here, I believe he's talking to, to believers who are just spiritually lethargic. Okay, so that's a key uh, distinguishing feature as we, as we begin our study. But they were, at the time, they were being unfaithful to Christ. They weren't living for Jesus. And so then he says, the beginning of God's creation. Now, uh, you probably recognize that from Colossians 1.15, where it talks about Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And so a little over 200 years after this letter was written to Revelation, a man named Arius took these, th- this concept and, and developed a false doctrine that said Jesus was created. And that concept is found today in Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons. It's a doctrinal error. So we need to understand what is Jesus really saying when he says beginning of God's creation. The word for beginning is arch or arche, depending on how you pronounce it. And it, is, it means ruler as well. So in Revelation 1.5, it's translated as ruler, ruler of all the kings, it says. And so here could also mean the ruler of God's creation. Uh, in, God's, in John's gospel account, he says that is, uh, Jesus was the, in the beginning with God, that all things were made through him. So John is saying creation was rooted in Christ. Because it's rooted in Christ, he has supremacy over it. He is the ruler of this creation, of everything that we can see. He's also ruler of this church at Laodicea, and he should be ruler of our lives as well. And so because of that, we should pay close attention to what he has to say. Jesus said, I know your works. And for some of the churches in the past, good things followed that. You know, I know your patient endurance. I know your love. But that's not what we see here. There's no commendation here. There's no words of, hey, I, I, I see your witness for me. I see what you're doing. It just says, I, I, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. So the only of all the, the letters to the churches here, the only one that doesn't have a commendation is this one. Um, you're neither cold nor hot. Um, would that you were either cold or hot. Now, the church had a problem. They weren't cold. They weren't hot. They were just right in the middle. They were lukewarm. Now, to really understand what's happening here, we have to understand the city's water condition. So Jesus is talking about their spiritual condition, but he's basing that on top of their water condition. The the Laodicea got their water from Hierapolis, which is about five to six miles away. And so Hierapolis was known for its hot mineral spring water, um, or hot hot water that that was soothing for those with physical ailments. And so that water was sent in via a six mile aqueduct and it would come down to Laodicea. The problem was, by the time it got to Laodicea, it was no longer hot. It was lukewarm. And it also had calcium carbonate in it. So it was, it was hot, lukewarm mineral water is really what it was. So it was not pleasant to drink. And so Jesus says, you know, I, I wish that you were hot, 
Um, but then 10 miles away, Colossae was, was known for its cold, refreshing spring water. Uh, but they, but uh, Laodicea didn't have access to it either. And so they were left with this just warm mineral water, which is it's interesting um, that they were so advanced in banking. They were so advanced in commerce. But when it came to water, they just had lukewarm mineral water. And it was not pleasant to drink. So Jesus would say, would, would that is an expression of a wish. You know, I just wish you were either hot or cold. Now, he's not, he's not saying, I wish you were cold spiritually. He's just saying, I wish you would be refreshing. I wish you were either hot, you were on fire for me, you were, you were bringing healing to those with ailments around you, with spiritual, physical ailments. Or I wish you were cold. That is, I wish you were refreshing to the world, to the unbelievers around you. I, I, I wish you were just one of those, but instead you're right in the middle and you're, you're, not, you're, you're neither. You're, you're ineffective is what he was saying. And, and you know, when, when you go to Starbucks to order something, you, you can order a caramel macchiato, you can order it hot, you can order it cold, but you don't say, hey, I'd like a lukewarm caramel macchiato. It, it just doesn't taste as good. It's, it's not as enjoyable and so uh, he's talking about they're lukewarm spiritually. They're ineffective. And so he's, he said, I, I, wish, I wish you would, you would offer the healing word of God. The, I wish you were hot and offered the healing word of God to those who were sick. Or I wish you were cold so you could be refreshing to the weary. So because of their situation, Jesus said, I will spit you out of my mouth. There's no extremes the combination of the lukewarm mineral water just would just cause you to want to spit it out. Jesus is saying, essentially, your spiritual condition makes me sick. And I know those are, seem harsh words, and I know this is not pleasant to think about, but the, the word means really it's to cause someone to vomit. Just, I will spit you out of my mouth. He, Jesus is not talking about them losing their salvation He's talking about their fruit. Their fruit was the problem. Not their faith, their fruit. They didn't, they didn't have any fruit. They weren't being effective for him. And so Jesus is frustrated. And he says, I, 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 just, I wish you were doing what I, I expect you to do, but you're, you're not doing either. And because of that, I, 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 I'm frustrated. And just, it, it makes me sick. So it would, unless they reform their ways, it would lead to some type of judgment. And so tonight I want to share with you five facts about spiritual lethargy. Five facts about spiritual lethargy that, that I see here in the text. And the first one is this. Spiritual lethargy does not produce anything valuable. If you and I are followers of Christ and we're spiritually lethargic, there's, there's no value coming from our life. I mean, yes, we're valuable in God's sight because we are His children. We are made in His image. We have the Holy Spirit. But I'm talking about fruit there's no spiritual fruit in our life. There's no value coming from our life. Just like in this church, there's no Jesus saying, you're not being effective. You're, there, there's no value in, in what you're doing. You're not being refreshing. And so I want you to, I want you to think about, let's, let's take uh, a quick test. Think about this individually for a moment. I may be lukewarm if, if any of these or all of these are true for you. I may be lukewarm if. I cannot remember the last time I shared the gospel with someone. If you have to think, I just I can't remember the last time. Maybe it's been years or, uh, or it's been months. If, if you cannot remember, then it's, it's a good chance you may be lukewarm spiritually. Number two, 
Uh, I may be lukewarm if my personal devotion time is sporadic rather than consistent. If it's sporadic, it's just, well, you know, yeah, I think I did a couple weeks ago. If it's not consistent, it's a good chance that that, that we're lukewarm. Number three, I, I I may be lukewarm if I cannot remember the last time I prayed for someone outside of my family. I can't remember interceding for the needs of someone at the church or the need of someone at my neighborhood or at my job. I, I'm too focused on, on my world and what I can see right in front of me. I don't have time to pray for anybody else. So th- those would be good indicators that, that you're at a lukewarm place right now spiritually. That you're at a place where you're not being effective for the Lord. And, 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 and that, that bothered Jesus. The church of Laodicea was not producing fruit. And so you remember John 15, 8, Jesus says this, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. When we bear fruit for Christ, we prove that, yes, we belong to Him. We follow Jesus, and it brings glory to the Father. So Jesus wants us to bear fruit for Him. Now the second fact about spiritual lethargy is found in verse 17. Jesus said, For you say, now they say three different things here. And it's I, I, I. Take a look at this. I am rich, they say. I have prospered, and I need nothing. You just can sense the arrogance. I, I don't need a thing. I, I don't need anything. Now, now let's, let's take a look at this. I am rich, they said. Rich means what you think it means. Being plentifully supplied with something. To be abundant or abounding in something. Now, remember... Laodicea was a wealthy city, so, uh, but they mistakenly assumed because they were materially or financially wealthy that they were also spiritually wealthy. That if I'm doing well in this, that area of my life, that I must be doing well spiritually. So I don't need to you know, give any extra effort. I'm, I'm doing fine. I'm spiritually wealthy. There was one family, Laodicea, that was so wealthy that they attained the status of royalty in the Roman Empire. Those are the kind of some of the people that were, that were living in Laodicea. Now, this is interesting. In AD 20, there was an earthquake that caused some destruction in Laodicea. And they, the Roman Empire came in and said, we'll help you rebuild. So they helped them financially, helped them get back on their feet. About 40 years later, in 60 AD, another earthquake came, devastated the city, except this time Laodicea said, we don't need your help. We are self-sufficient. We've got some benefactors around here. So Roman Empire, thank you, but no thank you. We don't really need your help. And so they had some local people. They, they, they depended on them for their gifts. Uh, one man in particular who, uh, who gave 2,000 talents, which would today would be maybe a couple million dollars, possibly more. They built a gymnasium. They built a stadium. They, they built a number of buildings all on their own. They, the Roman Empire didn't help them at all. And so it just fueled this self-sufficiency that I, I'm good. I, you know, I, I appreciate you, Roman Empire, but I, you know, we're, we're, we're fine. And that trickled over into their spiritual life. And they began to say, you know, I'm rich. Um, I've earned these things. I'm, I'm pretty good at my job. And I, I'm, I, I'm sufficient. I've, I, I've got this covered. And so that, that it affected them spiritually. And he, they said, I have prospered. Prospered means to be plentifully supplied with something, to be rich. And that is very similar to the word, I am rich. In fact, the roots, uh, both those words come from the same root word, 
which we get our English word plutocracy, which refers to the power of wealth. They, they had the power of wealth, and they, the, the, the problem was they assumed they were also spiritually wealthy. And because of that, they said, I need nothing. I, I, don't, I don't have a need. You know, I'm good. I, I, I appreciate that, but, you know, I'm, we're sufficient. They were prideful, and there's nothing wrong with money, but when it leads to that type of uh, spirit of arrogance and I've got this covered, I don't need your help, God, I'm good, and we, we've got this covered, we'll run this church. When it, when it leads to that type of, uh, of, of, of spirit, then there's a problem. Proverbs 18 or 11, 28 says this, Those who trust in their riches will fall, but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. Just as the city refused help from the Roman Empire to build their city, the church didn't feel like they needed help from God. So it was a dangerous place to be. So one of the key phrases is, go back to verse 17, keep reading. One of the key phrases in this passage is what happens here. It says, not realizing. They said, I, I'm rich, I've prospered, I don't need, I have no need, I don't have a need, not realizing. The word there is oida, which is used of Jesus in verse 15 when Jesus says, I know your works. Now, when it's used of Jesus or God, it means he has divine knowledge, but when it's used of humans here, it means they had no theoretical knowledge, as one source said. They, they had no, they didn't have the intelligence to realize of their poor condition. In other words, they, they had no earthly idea of the real state that they were in. Jesus said, you, you tell me these three things, I'm going to tell you five things that are true about you. And so he comes here, he said, they don't realize, and Jesus lists off five different things here. They didn't realize that they were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, you remember probably when you were a child growing up that sometimes people would tape a sign to your back. You know, maybe it said, laugh at me, or they'd call you a name or kick me or something. And everybody else is in on it, and you don't have any idea because you can't see it because it's on your back. And people are laughing at you or they're calling you something. You think, what is going on? They know something that I don't know. And that's kind of what's happening here. God knows this, Jesus knows this, the Holy Spirit knows this, but they don't know it. The church has no clue about their spiritual condition. They don't realize it. They just think, we're good. And that is the the irony of this whole thing. They thought they were set. And Jesus is saying, you don't even realize it. You don't see it. And and it's, it's astonishing. He says, you're wretched. The word means to be miserable or to distress. The only, to be distressed. The only other time it's used in the Bible is in Romans 7, verse 24. And Paul says, wretched man that I am. Talking about his sinful condition. I'm a wretch. I'm just miserable. Pitiable. means to be greatly concerned about someone in need, to have compassion or mercy. The essence of the word speaks of mercy. And it's talking about the church. They needed God's mercy and they didn't even know it. It's not saying that they were to be pitied. It's saying they were pitiful. They were pitiful. They were in a pitiful state, and they needed the mercy of God, and they didn't have a clue. Then he says, probably the most shocking of these is that he said that you're poor. Now, this was the banking city. This was the wealthy city. And Jesus says, yeah, I see all of that, but you're really poor. You're spiritually poor. And I'm sure that would have been shocking for them to go, well, no, wait a minute. No, no, no. You must have known who you're talking to. We're, we're, we're poor. 
Uh, remember, Jesus, this is this. We're 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 good businessmen here, and and women. And Jesus says, "Yeah, I, I know that, but you're you're really poor uh, spiritually. You're 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 not you're not what you think you are." And then uh, you're living in, as one source says, you're living in spiritual squalor before God's sight. Uh, Jesus then also says, you're blind. Now, what's interesting, they had a medical center, as we said earlier, 13 miles from here. And um, uh, they, were, they were known for that. And uh, in spite of that, they were spiritually blind. Now, they, they had even produced what's called the Fergian powder. They had this eye powder stuff that they had developed, and they were, they were well known for that. And in spite of that, Jesus says, really, you're blind. You're, you're spiritually blind. You, you can't see. You can't see the things that I see but so, because you're so consumed with your own material, physical world. You just, you can't see it. And then he says, you're naked. You're naked. That is, you, you are exposed and you are humiliated before me, Jesus said, just like a naked person would be. Now, these are strong words from Jesus. They're meant to get the church's attention and to, to wake them up. And, and the greatest shock would have been that they had no idea that they were living amongst affluence and they thought they were fine and they really weren't. Jesus says, you're really poor and you don't have any spiritual sight. They were completely unaware of what was happening around them in their hearts. This is our second fact about spiritual lethargy. Spiritual lethargy means we are oblivious to our true condition. Spiritual lethargy means we're oblivious to our true condition. If we are spiritually lethargic, it's because we don't realize our own poor spiritual condition. Unless we think that this this was applicable to somebody else in another city somewhere else, let's, let's, let's look at ourselves here for a minute. Did you know that in Birmingham, we have one of the top 50 richest zip codes in the U.S.? One of the top 50 richest zip codes in the U.S., in the Birmingham area. Did you know that Shelby County is the number one county in the state per capita income? Of 67 counties in the state, our county is number one in the state per capita income. We are not immune to the affluence around us. It, 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 doesn't, have to, it doesn't have to affect us, but it certainly can and what's sad is we may not even realize it. And, and listen to this statistic. Nearly half of the world's population, which is more than 3 billion people, live on less than $2.50 a day. So let's just agree on something. Compared to that, all of us are considered wealthy. All of us, no matter if you're poverty level, you make a million a year, we're considered rich compared to $2.50 a day to more than 3 billion people. So when we say wealthy, why don't we typically think, well, that's not me, you know, I'm a school teacher, and you know, we don't live in that neighborhood, or we don't drive that type of car. No, compared to this, all of us are wealthy. And so all of us can be impacted by the affluence around us. And what's sad is we may not even know it. It, it can impact the way we think about ourselves. We think, you know, I'm doing well at my job, so I'm doing well with God, even though I'm not spending time with him. I can't remember the last time I shared the gospel. I don't really have vision for the things of God, but, you know, I'm safe because I've got insurance for every single area of my life, so if anything happens, I'm good. And, and it, it, 
It's a problem. Jesus is telling them, wake up and realize your true spiritual condition is not connected to your material condition. Now, the, things get better here. You have to keep reading. Verse 18, Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me. And he lists several different things here, three different things uh, that they needed to buy. And he's talking about if you want to be spiritually rich, you want to be spiritually wealthy, then this is what you need. And what's interesting, he's telling them to buy, which is what they were good at from a a world uh, commerce perspective. I mean, they were great businessmen and women. And Jesus is saying, yeah, but you need to buy something. And so, uh, but, you know, he says, buy from me. Don't buy at the marketplace. Don't don't go down to the, the medical center. Jesus is saying, come to me. If you want to be spiritually wealthy, we have to go to Christ. That's where the resources are found. And so Jesus is saying, I counsel you or I advise you. Jesus is going to give advice on a course of action. That word for counsel is used of, remember Caiaphas and John 18 and verse 14 when he counseled the Jews, say, hey, it'd be expedient for one man to die for the whole country and to, to die for the people. That's the same word. Jesus is saying, I counsel you. And he wanted them to change their course of action. So the first thing they should do, he says, is buy gold refined by fire. Now, gold refined by fire, he's talking about this process of intense heat that would purify the gold. It would remove the impurities from the gold. And Jesus is using this as a metaphor for spiritual riches. And I believe he's talking about trust in him. And the reason I I think that is because in 1 Peter 1.7, it mentions faith is more precious than gold. So the church needed to trust in God instead of their material prosperity. So he said, the first thing, you need, you need to trust in me. And don't, don't look to your wealth for security. Come to me, he says. Trust in him. Next, they needed white garments from Jesus to clothe themselves. Now, this was interesting because Laodicea was famous for a wool industry. They had these sheep there that would produce this black wool. And it was a commodity. And Jesus is saying, don't dress in black like the others do in that area. You need white garments. And white garments could cover could only they, they symbolize righteousness and purity, but only the clothing of Christ could cover their nakedness and their shame, the shame from their sin. Only the righteousness of Christ could do that. In the Old Testament, nakedness after the fall of man into sin refers is a symbol of God's judgment. And so, uh, the Laodiceans, no matter how sophisticated they were, they cannot hide their true spiritual condition from Jesus. And so he's telling them, hey, if you'll just come to me, I'll cover you. You will be covered in righteousness and and the white garments and impurity if you'll just come to Christ. So Jesus is urging them, calling them to repentance is what he's doing. I I love the word of God. When we see strong words from Jesus, then we turn right around and we see the love of Christ. He is imploring them, if you will just come to me. He wants the relationship to be made right. He's not just... He's not just scolding them out of anger. He's calling them to himself. And so uh, then he says, you need eye salve. You need salve to anoint your eyes. Remember he said earlier, he says, you can't see. You, you, you don't have spiritual vision for the needs around you. He says, you need, you need eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Oh, they were famous for their vision, but they were spiritually 
blind. I read that the visual or ocular science was more developed in Laodicea than anywhere else in the Greco-Roman world. Yet Jesus is saying, you can't see. You need to come. Only spiritual vision only comes from Christ. If we're going to be moved by the needs around us in the world, we have to be in fellowship with Christ. And then, we, then we'll see what, what he sees. Here's our third fact about spiritual lethargy. Spiritual lethargy can be exchanged for spiritual riches. Lethargy can be exchanged for spiritual riches. Jesus could have cut this church off, but instead he's drawn them, trying to draw them back to yourself. He offered counsel to them. Uh, this past November in Minnesota, a seventh grader named Jonathan Jones was learning about colorblindness in his class. Now, Jonathan himself struggles, struggles with a severe colorblindness issue or condition. And so the principal of the school, who also is colorblind, brought these glasses to Jonathan. Jonathan's seventh grader, um, he's colorblind as far as I know his whole life, but these glasses allowed him to see color. And you can watch the video, he puts, he puts the glasses on and all of a sudden he can see color. And it's overwhelming to him. I mean, they were looking at, they had the color-coded periodic table there on the whiteboard. He's looking at that, and he just starts to weep because he's never seen it. He, he just, as far as I know, he hasn't seen it in his whole life, and he's just weeping, and it's overwhelming to him. And that's what happens when we come to Christ, when we get right with it, all of a sudden, it's like putting new glasses on. And we start going, oh my goodness, I had no idea. There's needs all around me. And I've just been oblivious to it because I, I, I didn't have spiritual vision. And, and so when we hear about, well, there's, there's kids that are out of school and they, you know, they typically eat lunch at school. And now where are they getting they, their food? Instead of just going, oh, well, they'll figure it out. When we have the spiritual vision, all we go, oh, man, we got to do something because God loves those children. We, we, man, that, we, we got to get with it. We, we got to get out and meet some needs here. And when we have spiritual vision, it affects the way we, we do programming at church. It affects the way we structure our budget because we've got to think about others. We've got to invest in others and minister to others. That spiritual vision only comes from Christ. And I'm telling you, if we're missing that, if we're, if we're just immune to the needs around us, then we are like the people at Laodicea, so over-consumed with where our next vacation is and where our next getaway is and instead of being in tune with the needs around us, having the mind of Christ, having the vision of Christ. Verse 19, Jesus says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So Jesus loved them. Jesus loved them. He is reproving them. He is disciplining them because he loves them. Parents, you understand this. You do this with your kids. You want to correct them because you want them to get on the right path. You want to be productive citizens and honoring to God the rest of their life. And, and that's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm disciplining you because I have a special, special interest in you. Jesus is saying, I love you. I care about you. The word, um, this terminology sounds a lot like Proverbs 3, where Solomon says that the Lord reproves the one that he loves. Reprove means to penalize for wrongdoing. It means to punish, to discipline. The, the, the verb is intended to point out a problem and encourage the person to do something about it. So Jesus has pointed out the problem now. I see these five things in you, he says, and now I want you to do something about it. I don't want to just leave you in that condition. I want you to change. And so then he says, interestingly, this word for reprove is used of the Holy Spirit. In John 16 and verse 8, talking about the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
If you sense the Holy Spirit convicting you of something, speaking to your heart today, He wants to change you. He's not just convicting you so you go, oh, I'm just such a wretched person. It, he wants you to go, you know what? I, I'm struggling. I, I'm, I'm sinning right now. Confess it and get right with God. That way we get on the path of obedience and we get on the path of bearing fruit for God and for Jesus. Then the second word, discipline, means to assist in the development of a person's ability to, to make appropriate choices. It's associated with the word for child, which is piedon. And so Jesus is, is loving this church just as he loves children. He's loving this church. He's saying, you are my children. And I'm pointing these things out to you because I love you. And I want, I want us to correct what's wrong here so that we can be in fellowship with each other, he's saying. So he tells them then what to do. Be zealous and repent. Be zealous is a present imperative or command. It means to be intensely serious about something, to be eager, to be earnest. It's interesting that he says, be zealous before he says, repent. You Normally you may think, well, I'm going to repent first and then I'll get zealous. But he's talking about there should be a burning desire in our hearts, this zealousness, this eagerness, this seriousness that, you know what, I'm going to get right with Christ. Things are going to be different now. And, and because we have that burning desire in our hearts, then we repent. And we say, oh, God, have mercy. Lord, forgive me. I confess to you that I've, I've been whatever it is. And then we say, yeah, I'm repenting. I'm, I'm changing. God, help me by the power of your spirit. Help me to be different. Change my heart, oh, God. And so he, Jesus is saying, get serious. Turn to Christ. Get, get, wake up from this lethargic, lukewarm condition. Here's the, for, the fourth point. The fourth fact about spiritual lethargy. Spiritual lethargy in our hearts must be dealt with through repentance. It must be dealt with through repentance. A number of years ago, several generations ago, a man named J.C. Ryle, uh, uh, he's a well-known English uh, pastor in the Anglican Church there, he wrote a, a book called Thoughts for Young Men. And in his section on thoughtlessness, he tells a story that uh, Matthew Henry had told about a great statesman that lived during the Queen Elizabeth's time. So this would have been late 16th century, early 17th century in England. The statesman retired from public life, and he gave himself to serious thought. Now, his former companions came to see this statesman one day, and they could obviously tell a difference in him, and they just said, hey, you're so somber. And listen to what this statesman said. No, he replied, I'm serious. For everyone around me is serious. God is serious in observing us. Christ is serious in interceding for us. The Spirit is serious in striving with us. The truths of God are serious. Our spiritual enemies are serious in their endeavors to ruin us. Poor, lost sinners are serious in hell. And why then should you and I not be serious too? There should be a seriousness about us in our relationship to Christ. And I'm not saying we can't have fun and enjoy the life we have in Christ. I'm saying when people come in here to worship, they should sense these period people are serious about the gospel. They are serious in their love for Christ. This is not a game to them. They're not just playing church. When people see you at the office or see you in your neighborhood, they should say, man, that person loves Jesus Christ. There's just no, I mean, they're serious. They're committed. It is obviously important to them. That should be true of us. Our fifth and final fact about spiritual lethargy is found in verse 20. Uh, Jesus 
He had a critical message for this church to hear. You've probably heard this verse before. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Notice that Jesus doesn't kick down the door here. Jesus doesn't force in and force himself upon this church. He just says, I stand at the door and knock. Knock is in the present tense. I just stand at the door and knock, keep knocking. And it's just a picture of him, his patiently waiting on the church to respond to him. In the ancient Near East, entering someone's home for a meal was the ultimate demonstration of friendship. In fact, when relationships were strained in that day, the beginning of reconciliation often came through a meal invitation. In the years 85 to 100 AD, people in Laodicea had to host Roman soldiers and government officials in their home. And the soldiers would often force themselves into a home. And the residents just had to, had to host them. They didn't have a choice. But that's not what happens with Jesus. Jesus doesn't come as a threat. Jesus doesn't come to force himself upon the church. He says, I just, I stand at the door and knock, and I wait for you to open. Jesus was not Lord of their lives. Uh, and some of you, you may have, may have made a decision for Christ early in your life, but you've not made Jesus Lord of your life. Maybe you've seen, seen that process as a threat. Maybe you've thought, hey, if I actually do that, what if he calls me to move overseas? What if he calls me to move out of my comfort zone, actually go across the street and try to have a gospel conversation? So because of that, maybe you've never made Jesus Lord of your life. And he stands and he knocks and he waits. And the wisest thing you and I could do would be to open the door and say, oh, Lord Jesus, come over and just take control of my life. Take control. Do with me what you want. Use my gifts. Use the abilities you've given me. Use the intelligence you've given me. Use it all for your glory. Be, be Lord of my life. What could be better than that? What could be better than having fellowship with Jesus? Jesus says, I'll come in and I'll, I'll, I'll dine with you. And I believe ultimately he's talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb, but he's talking about right now. We can have that type of fellowship with Christ right now. And, and I, I want that in my life. What, what, what could be better than having that intimate Deep fellowship with Jesus Christ. And I want that in our church. When we, when we come here to worship together, man, we ought to leave here going, man, I, I, it doesn't get any better than that. I mean, how, what, what else is better than having fellowship with Jesus Christ? And so he's knocking. Now is the time for some of you. Maybe you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Now is the time. Now is the time to say, confess your sins to God and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Others of you, you've already done that. But man, now's the time to make him Lord of your life. You think, man, I've, the Holy Spirit's convicted me. I've been lethargic. I've not been, I've not been hot for Christ like I need to be. Hey, Jesus loves you. And, and this word is a word of counsel from him to point out where you are so that he can get you to where he wants you to be. So be, be grateful that Jesus loves us enough to gives us, give us those words. Here's our fifth and final fact about spiritual lethargy. Spiritual lethargy can cause us to miss deep fellowship with Jesus. It can cause us to miss deep fellowship with Jesus. Don't just walk through the motions of life. The idols of sports and fame and finances are never going to give you that deep contentment 
that only we can find in Jesus Christ. And so after this, Jesus says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Now, Jesus has given a lot of promises through here, but of all the churches, what I read, this, this, is, this is the chief one. He says, you'll sit on the throne with me. Remember in Hebrews 1.3, it says, after Jesus had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And Jesus is saying, you'll sit with me for all who follow Jesus Christ, for all who receive him as Lord and Savior, we get to sit with him. It's a position of rest and honor that I read that's extended to every person who will receive him. Wow, it's a powerful word, but it's an encouraging word. I hope that it encourages you. It was a cold Sunday afternoon in December in the UK in the early 1980s. About 109 miles west of London, Robert Kadai was managing a hotel. It was Sunday afternoon, you know, it was blizzard outside, and he just thought, you know, no one's going to be coming in here. And so he had let a lot of his staff go, and he was kind of just cleaning up. Uh, he was watching the royal wedding from, uh, uh, that had happened earlier that he had missed, so he wanted to catch up on that. And all of a sudden, people start coming into his hotel. Uh, motorists that were traveling by, they wanted to get out of the conditions. And so they came in, and next thing you know, he's got around 100 people or so in his hotel. He's got one room left. And all of a sudden, he hears a knock on the door. And he answers the door, and it's a very distinguished-looking gentleman. And the gentleman said, that such quietly said this, uh, I wish to inform you that Her Majesty the Queen is outside. Uh, would you have room for her too? Well, absolutely he did. You can imagine. He had, he had one room left, so he got his snow shovel out, and he cleared out a path for the Queen to go to room 15. So the Queen is at a two-star hotel, 109 miles outside of London. For seven hours, she stayed at this hotel. And as you can imagine... After she left, I mean, his business spiked and people wanted to come and see where the, the queen had stayed. And it, it was business was good for him. When you sent someone knocking on the door of your heart, be assured that Jesus will not send someone else. Jesus knocks on the door himself. And if you will let him in, he'll stay longer than seven hours. In fact, if you'll let him be Lord of your life, he'll stay forever. And ever. So I encourage you, wherever you are tonight, turn to Christ and allow him to be Lord of your life. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for your love for us, that you love us enough to convict us and to discipline us when we need it. We worship you. We say thank you, Father. Lord, would you have mercy on us in the areas of our life where we've been spiritually lethargic? We ask you, God, give us the courage to be hot for Jesus Christ, to be who you would call us to be in this world. God, would you help us? Lord, we, can, we cannot do that in our own strength. We need the power of your spirit to work in and through our lives. But Lord, we're willing and we ask you and just beg you to take over our lives. Be Lord, Jesus, be Lord of our lives. Father, thank you for this time. We commit the rest of this night, the rest of this week to you. 
and we do it in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.